You are listening to Mind Over Myth, a podcast about creativity. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Mind Over Myth. I am your host, Erica Bram, and in this episode, I have a chat to one of my really good friends, Dan Christie. Now, Dan calls himself a facilitator of creative community projects, and this is actually a really good way of describing what Dan does, because Dan is really good at entertaining. He throws an excellent party, but he's also really good at combining his kind of skill for entertaining with his skills for bringing people together and um, bringing them together in a way that facilitates creative work. So some of my fondest memories actually are sitting in this very lounge room where I am recording this intro now uh, for Rag and Bone Man writing salons where a bunch of us would hang out, uh, drink lots of wine, have a really great time playing writing games, reading out our own little compositions, and just, I guess, enjoying being creative together. So that's kind of what Dan does in brief. We chat about what he does in much finer detail in the podcast. So I'm here in my lounge room with Dan Christie. And Dan, I was organised enough to send you a list of questions yesterday, so you had some um, things to think about for our chat today. I thought maybe we could just start by going through the questions, and maybe I'll just go to the first one, which was how do you manage... Uh, the balance between the creative and non-creative sides of your work. So I thought this was a good one um, to speak with you about because um, I hope we can speak about the creative side in a, a bit later in our chat, but I really wanted to talk about how you kind of um, fit in all of the non-creative stuff that you do, so like the PR and the marketing, because I know you do a lot of that for the projects that you're involved in. The marketing thing is a big one. Yeah. Um, I think because, especially if you're doing small projects, like the community projects I've worked on, you know, it's independent work, so there's so few resources, yeah. so it does yep. come down to you. Yep. Um, and managing the, the PR stuff, I think, is almost interesting for people of our generation. They were just on that final cusp before things became really digital. Yeah. And I know that I was a person that um, wasn't intuitively interested yeah. in technology yeah. and, um, you know, social media, all those types yeah. of things. And it's something I had to really work on yeah. and consciously cultivate yeah. over a period of time. Yeah. Um, so when it came to marketing, there was this sort of crash course as a slightly behind the eight ball person that you took it to come in and start you know, generating public attention where you could. Yeah. And you end up putting a lot of resources into that too. Yeah. Um, just um, And you just become aware of the, the competition out there as well. Yeah. I think that's it. You just get yeah. to establish more exposure. Like yeah. I have to, like, in the midst of all this noise, get people to pay attention to my book or get people to pay attention to my music. And I found that really challenging. How do I get that one thing that's going to capture yeah. people's imagination? Yeah, <laughs> and still, and in the same time, still actually focus on creating the product yeah. and finalizing. And then, product. how do you kind of like maybe more for like really creative work when you've got that competition? How then do you manage the comparison thing that that usually happens? Like when you're comparing your, you know, you've got a book and someone else is marketing a book, and then you're like, ah, oh, they're doing better than me. They've got more, you know, mm. they're getting they they've got an interview like in this magazine, and I didn't get it. Like, how do I? How do you manage that side of things? Mm. It is tricky. I mean, I think it is interesting over the time where, for example, the Ragnarok Man Press, once we built a reputation, 
and we start getting a bit more into the in circles of yeah. the industry. Suddenly, the press followed a lot more. Yeah, and it was really so in the early days. Chasing day. them, mm. they were asking you for stories or exactly. Yeah. So, with for example, when we did um, our first book, readings picked up on it. So, picked up on Soup Fan Stories over a Polystyrene Cup, which was our book about homeless people yep. um, in, in the around those communities in Smith Street. And that really captured, it was a good topic that captured some imagination. So what, two things happened. One, readings picked up on it and took, and actually wrote about it in their newsletter. Yeah. And it was a type of, so, that social advocacy angle was a good hook for an age reporter, um, Carolyn Webb, who focused yeah. on social justice. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a few lucky ins in that yeah. way. Yeah. We just wrote up a press release and sent it out. Yeah. No one knew who we were from anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, infamously, in just before we even published the first book, we went to the National Young Writers Festival in yeah. Newcastle, and we did a twenty-minute slide presentation that mostly was shots of camels and me waving my arms about because we had nothing to sell, yeah. but I had to get attention yeah. of yeah. the people in the community. So, in the early days, it was as much about just trying to get attention for any reason, and yeah. then once people sort of knew who you were, then they could start focusing on the product a bit yeah. more. Yeah. And over time, we really honed the message, and it became much more that we could just sell the product. Yeah. Um, but throughout the entire process, the marketing was always a real challenge because no one had real specialised expertise yeah. in it. I think that's like a lot of creative mm. people anyway because you're mm. good at your, what you're doing, you know, you're good at writing or you guys are sort of editors and writers and, and you know, creative people, but then you're not good at talking about yourselves. And, no. And you've got, you don't have the skills to write a press release like... You can kind of Google online how to write a press release and there's lots of resources that come up, but how do you know that the, what you write is going to be interesting mm. and, and, exactly. and how do you know how to send it? Like I just found out only recently that it's better to put the press release in the body of the email rather than sending it as an attachment and mm. I would have thought that the attachment is kind of cleaner because then, you know, you don't have this big chunk of text in the email body, but apparently the email body, they just, like most journalists won't like read it if it's an attachment, they just... Mm it to their trash. I think we deal with a lot of mixed messages as well about what appeals to people these days yeah. because there's an emphasis on design as well so yeah. intuitively you think oh, people well, I yeah. probably give a beautifully yeah. formatted design yeah. press release yeah. versus the fact that you know journalists are time poor yeah. they've got stuff coming across yeah. their desk they want that hook yeah. just banging it in the yeah. email yeah. Um, but as until you have someone who knows to tell you you're yeah. not going to find it out for yeah, yourself yeah exactly or you sort of trial and error like maybe mm. you know mm. one journalist gets back to you and, and and kind of points that out, but like I, I hardly doubt journalists are going to be that no. nice about it. They're just they're I mean, so these days journalists can barely, yeah. yeah. Oh, like they, they yeah. Enough, don't have enough time to spell yeah. check their own work yeah. these days, let alone help other people yeah. with those types yeah. of things. Yeah. So, um, I think over time you just get your industry contacts. And I even know that with Rag and Bone, particularly, we were lucky that we were sort of among a group of people that were actually working in this very industry yeah. and give us some insider tips, yeah. And I think that that makes a big difference. And we were lucky in that sense that because we were working with literary people, they were working with journalists, they yeah. were working on industry, yeah. and they could tell us what to do. Yeah. With Big Up Co-op, the opera co-op that I started with Day, very different world, yeah. very different set of circumstances, yeah. very different crowds. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it, it goes without saying that um, what I produced through Rag and Bone was much more from an outside perspective, it's successful than Beg Up Co-op. Yeah. Even though in some ways though Beg Up Co-op was a passion project of mine yeah. that I was much more creatively yeah. invested in. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we didn't have that necessarily that support network or that easy media yeah. hook around it, yeah. it was a much harder piece yeah. to promote. Yeah. Do you think, because I know you've done kind of that one main thing with 
Fig of Co-op, mm. the, um, is it uh, Seduction Demise, Demise in, in East Berlin. So do you think if you put out a second project, which I know you're working on something, you'll kind of have a little bit of that grounding already that you can build upon? Do you think that's going to help? Um, potentially. The, the one actually thing on this, because we put in an application to put in our new song cycle, which is called Songs of the Sea. So they're six standalone pieces that are based on stock figures from Seaside. So we've got a Fisher Wife yep. and a Selkie and those yep. types of yep. things. But the we got into testing ground straight away because we've done a whole sort of launch event in yep. 2014 with our Seduction Demise yeah, project. Okay. So a lot of the design collateral and the and the support we got around yep. doing that event, we could then use as leverage yeah. to yeah. get into another venue yeah. and actually get people interested in the project yeah. that way. Whereas when we started Seduction Demise, we had nothing. Yeah. And so we spent all those years building things up from yeah. scratch. So once you have that collateral yeah. there, you do have a lot more to build yeah. on. I think that's that's kind of a hard thing for people starting out, and I for me especially is that that first kind of thing is really difficult. And even if all you do is you end up with one good review somewhere, and like from the you know thousands of emails and press releases and all of that stuff you send out, it can kind of feel like a failure because your project didn't really get off the ground. But what you did do is that you know suddenly you've got that that kind of good review which you can pull some quotes from and exactly. immediately look like a more legitimate kind of you know like artist or you know arts organization or arts collective but sometimes getting through that first stage can be really difficult and I think that's where a lot of people fall off like I know mm. lots of lots of people who've kind of done their first project and it hasn't really like in you know been a success in their eyes comp when they compare it to other people's success in a similar industry and they've kind of got a bit disheartened and, and fallen off and then you know mm. And and comparison is a difficult thing because yeah. I always think there are some people out there that are very single-mindedly and absolutely committed to their craft yeah. regardless of whether they get success or not. Yeah. And I think you need yeah. to be of that mindset in some ways yeah. if you're going to persist. Yeah. And it can't, in some ways it can't purely be about yeah. approval. I mean, yeah. everyone wants creative approval, yeah. but it's yeah. just that it's simply that persistence yeah. of breaking through those yeah. early and, stages. And I think, yeah, maybe the kind of creative approval has to come from yourself and and what is your measure of success like is your measure of success kind of feeling proud that you produced this thing that that you know was your creative vision and then now it's it's a reality is that enough for you and then everything else is kind of is extra but mm -hmm. there's managing that that relationship between wanting people to hear your work or see your work or experience your work because a lot of the time we make work to be consumed of course rather than just making it for our for ourselves because you could just make it for yourself and you know that's never show it to anyone and there is that that very unique experience of excitement and i've only really experienced this through the big old cult work rather than the publishing work yeah where suddenly your work comes to life yeah. on stage and i don't think yeah. you're ever more vulnerable than you are in that moment yeah. where suddenly it's there yeah. and it's in front of you and immediately your own worst critics when you talk yeah. about self-criticism yeah. This, you suddenly the things that you never saw up until that yeah. point that's on stage come tumbling out of your head yeah. that word doesn't fit right that sentence doesn't make yeah. sense that doesn't yeah. work theatrically <laughs> suddenly you're just bursting yeah. and so what you live for in that moment yeah. is the laughter or the applause yeah. or the reaction or the yeah, engagement sure, from the audience because it kind of it, it makes everything okay it means that mm. it doesn't matter that that word didn't that word wasn't right or that you know that bit didn't make sense because everybody still still got it and everyone was still entertained by it Exactly. And I mean, um, in some ways I had insight into that even before I was truly writing things by myself because my father was a writer and I grew yeah. up with that process. And even now as a man in his late 50s, 
that crisis still comes yeah. every time. Yeah. And this is a person who's produced works in on the West End in London, copious countries around the yeah. world. He was a drama teacher himself for yeah. 10 years before being a writer. So he understands his craft really yeah. well. But there's, every time there's always that, I can't do this, yeah. I can't do this. Or when you see stuff on stage, there's always yeah. that innate yeah. criticism, that critical voice yeah. that comes up. Yeah. So this is something I'm really interested in for this podcast, is kind of talking more about that, because I think mm. in as artists we hide that side of our work because everybody sees the finished product. Mm. And especially with social media, there's this kind of push to be sharing like the, the highs of your life, like, you know, oh, you know, I've got this great review, our new show is opening. Mm. And there, I think, I feel that that makes people, um, it kind of makes creativity this like, this mysterious entity that only some people have access to and some people are allowed to experience. Mm. Whereas mm. I think if that sort of, side of the work is more visible then people realize that creativity i mean maybe yes there is some like creative thinking involved but there is also all this work behind the scenes and there's also this kind of turmoil that goes on and Absolutely. and creative people we always feel like we're the only ones experiencing that that sort of well exactly because the actual even if you're collaborating and i've often collaborated there's always that moment where you're by yourself with a laptop or a piece of paper, and yeah. it's just you having that interface with that yeah. process, and all you have are the words and ideas flowing around yeah. in your head, and that can be quite a lonely experience, yeah. Yeah. because you're sitting there with no one to fire off, no one to approve what you're saying, all you've yeah. got to do is trust in a certain level of your yeah. ability, yeah. and just and write and produce the work, yeah. and I know that there's been, particularly with Seduction and Demise, those times where I've, I've rewritten the lyrics to some of those songs, I'd say 25, 30 times, yeah. Just because I was like, I could always just change that syllable, yeah. make that tighter. Yeah. Or just, especially um, once it was put to music. Yeah. And I can talk a bit, a bit more about that process yeah. later yeah. on. But just that that moment where suddenly, oh, I need to tighten that there. Yeah. I need to shave that yeah. off there. And it's a very, my brain, when I do that process, goes into a completely different world. Yeah. And it's not an external, I'm mostly a very externally focused person, yeah. a very relationships focused yeah. person. Completely, it's like a different person in that moment. Yeah. My brain switches into a different gear, and suddenly there's this tunnel vision, and I'm focused on the yep. experience of crafting yep. that word yeah. or crafting that standard yeah. perfectly. Yeah, which I think that's a really good place to be in creatively, like that kind of tunnel vision, because it, it forces you to focus on the work and not to focus on all of those external distractions that can kind of make the work difficult. But then, how do you know when to stop? Mm. And I think in some ways you have. That's the benefit. There's two benefits. If you work with a collaborator, it's often easier to stop because you have to stop the poor yeah. person you're working yeah, yeah. with. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think sometimes when you see it in performance or you play it in performance, in yeah. your case, yeah. you suddenly know if it's right. Yeah, I think, yeah. And sometimes the, the performance is the, is the point where it can be the point yeah. where it stops. Yeah. Because I think it could, be, it could be potentially harder for a novelist or a prose writer. I suppose it's what an editor's for to tell you when yeah. to stop. Well, yeah, that's true. Because I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine about this and we were talking about how composing for yourself is, is quite difficult mm. to know when to stop because if you're composing for somebody else, if you kind of have, I mean, you've, maybe you've got a rehearsal booked in and so whatever is on the, on the score or, you know, on the page for that rehearsal, that is what gets performed and then you get to see it and you've kind of got, that's your full stop, you've ended it there. Mm. Whereas if you're composing for yourself, then you don't have that experience of handing over the score or the, the piece of work to somebody else to then do their thing with, it's just all you. So you could keep 
working on it and you know every every performance you have you start thinking like oh what if this was different and it can be quite hard to know when to stop for and I think also bear in mind that we're constantly being stimulated by new sounds and new inputs and once you have that interface with it your natural response is to go, oh, that's really interesting, or I'm really inspired by yeah. that. And so you go, oh, I'm going to go back and change this yeah. song. I'm going to tweak it because I've had yeah. this new stimulus, yeah. this new yeah. idea, this new input. Yeah. And if it's just you, then the temptation is endless to yeah. keep doing yeah. that. You can do that for the next 20 yeah. years. Well, yeah, you years. could. So you have to find ways of just telling yourself that that's, that's enough. I mean, I've kind of given myself that with this daily deadline, but there's still that, that kind of thing of like, I could keep going for ages. I could stay mm. up till 4am and keep tweaking whatever it is I'm working on. But there has to be a point where I have to say, no, nah, that's it. It's, mm. it. It is what it is. And then I can, if I want to, I can change it later or I can, you know, just leave it. Actually, I'm interested in Erica because obviously we know each other for some time and I've known you in a capacity as both a prose writer and yeah. a, a music yeah. writer, writer of music. Um, are they different experiences? Um, I... I don't think so because I think I focus really heavily on the text and the lyrical side of, of my music. That's mm-hmm. always what I've been interested in. And because, so maybe I should talk a little bit about Dan and I. So we've been friends for, I don't know, a long, long time. Over 10 years. Over 10 years. Yeah. So um, Dan used to run these um, writing salons, which were usually held in this very lounge in this room that very we're room. right now, little which is now my, my lounge room. It used to be Dan's lounge room. Um, and we'd all sit around, drink cheap Aldi wine and <laughs> just kind of do little writing exercises and, and, you know, read out whatever work we hadn't had produced for that, for that, um, that kind of theme of that night. Um, and so that's where I know you from, from kind of that time. But since then, we've both kind of gone off and done all sorts of different, different things. Yeah, yeah we've, we've both definitely developed and, you know, you've developed all of your projects and that writing salon has kind of developed into a big publishing, publishing kind of extravaganza. It certainly yeah. has. Hardback books, which <laughs> yeah. I, you told me that three years before we were drinking Aldi wine lounge yeah. and that's what would come to yeah. I've never yeah. believed you, but yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, so, um, going back to your question about prose versus music, I don't know, I don't think that they're, I don't think they're any different and I think I've always approached prose sort of like maybe like a songwriter or a, or a poet more mm. more from that perspective than because I find I'm I find the sounds of the words and the the kind of maybe the rhythmic kind of the rhythmic stuff in the text and and imagery more um, just comes easier to me than trying to think up a plot if I had to think up a plot I just get really stuck I've, I've tried several times to write like you know short stories and novels and things and I just I find that side of it really, really difficult. I think maybe because it's over a longer format as well. Mm. I'm used to, I'm used to that kind of shorter, shorter format of a song where you have to say something in this like you know tiny little chunk. And I really love that that kind of challenge of crafting like you know cutting something down to the absolute essential elements. Absolutely, and I think there's something that's really exciting about the musicality of language too. Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's some. I even noticed that. Back when I used to even write just short stories or short bits of prose, yeah, it was always as much about the dramatic impact or the yeah. sound of language I was yeah. using as it was more about the story I was telling. Yeah, yeah. And I've never been particularly fond of those stories that you know spend five pages describing a room because yeah. I kind of like just get to the point. Yeah, and always get to the heart of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, I think it comes from being grown up in a household where I was raised where people wrote mute for yeah, music and yeah. predominantly for music. Yeah. And so even though we were, I was a voracious reader, 
there was always that sense that when you wrote, you had to have that tightness. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Can we talk about that? Is that yeah, right? absolutely. About the yeah, writing for music and mm, no. maybe the collaboration with the composer as well, because that's yeah. quite interesting. It is interesting, um, particularly because when you talk about plot, I mean, when we wrote Seduction Demise, it yeah. ends up what. There's still as yet to be performed, two and a half hour <laughs> opera. <laughs> I mean, we performed the first act, but not the full piece. And one of the things, one of the ways that we worked is that I always wrote the lyrics first yep. and Dave wrote the music yep. later. Yep. Um, and for a long time, I just thought it was because Dave, my writing partner, was lazy. But actually, <laughs> yeah. this, as we grew as writers together over the time, a lot of the way he inflects his music is very dependent on the words I yeah. choose and the character yeah. I write. That's really that's how I feel about my own music as well. I find if I write the music first, it's so much harder to fit lyrics mm -hmm. to it because there's that kind of natural scansion that has to happen with language, either to make either to make it sound normal or you can manipulate that scansion to make it sound abnormal, which can have a certain effect. But if you've got kind of the music first and this, you know, like a melodic idea and, and and sort of rhythmic ideas, then trying to fit text to that is so much more difficult for me. I, I know lots of the jazz composers I, I know do the music first because it comes more naturally to mm -hmm. them, and mm -hmm. it's just for me the text is, is kind of, that's what comes more naturally for me. Mm. And I suppose if you are a person that does love and use language and use it well, then that's a more, that is a natural instinct yeah. too. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of musicians out there that I think... My brother, for example, is a composer for television, yeah. and he can't write lyrics. Like yeah. he wouldn't do that in a million words. So he tells yeah. his entire story through music. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I know my collaboration with Dave. That I suppose my words have always anchored the work that we've yeah. done. It's been a yeah. starting point. Yeah. But I have to get ideas from somewhere too, yeah. and so what I often have to do is I listen to a random song. Yeah. And then I just pretty much set the words to the song yeah okay <laughs> so <laughs> for example um there's this in um seduction demise there's this character called um puppet and she basically it's this song i wrote called song of introduction that's quite fast and quite syncopated and she's trying to get into the character's household as a, yeah. as a part of their share house and i wrote the entire thing and i just listened to Girl Anachronism by Dresden Dolls on Tape Loop yeah. and just pretty much set the lyrics to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then, but what's interesting is that's the first part of the process and yeah. because Dave hasn't necessarily listened to the source song, yeah. he then sets my lyrics yeah, into okay. a tune that drives this in, yeah. in the way that it comes to his head. Yeah. Actually, often my preferred songs that we collaborate together is where he's done something completely different from what the source song was. Yeah. But that's an important part of my creative journey because I need something to start with. Yeah, that's that's such a big thing as having something to start with. I can yeah. write the same as well. Because um, otherwise you're just writing... You can't write from thin air. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only problem with it is that, especially if the composition does end up being quite close to the source song, that sounds like a parody or yeah, pastiche. Yeah, You've got to be true. careful of yeah. dancing that So did too. you usually tell Dave what the source song was? Or? I would, but it never, it often, not always, didn't influence where he yeah, took okay. it. Particularly because he's a classically trained composer yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and to be perfectly frank, I took most of my cues from pop songs yeah, cool. or rock songs, yeah. you know. So... I think that worked well because a lot of our projects has been at the interface between sort of art, music and cabaret yeah. and those yeah. types of things. Yeah. So it needed to be grounded in that contemporary yeah. way of writing yeah. to give it structure. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have just been yeah. very classical, esoteric yeah. work. And there is this particular way of structuring, I guess, contemporary song lyrics, which mm. is sort of, I guess, by listening to that sort of source material, you kind of 
you're in that world of having that kind of structure of like you know verses and choruses and mm. and kind of the like the tension and release that has to happen through the lyrics of a song and, exactly and the development as well but I think what's good about David is because he's classically um, trained and a classically trained composer, he then takes it to a much more interesting yeah. place than yeah. it would be otherwise. Because yeah. otherwise he might as well just be writing folk songs or pop songs, which yeah. are fantastic and have yeah. a genre. Yeah. But what's interesting about our collaboration is that he gives it that edge by using yeah. that training and taking yeah. it in different directions. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think I enjoy the most about working with someone that has a very different creative background and yeah. creative skill set from yeah. what I do. Yeah. Otherwise, it'd all just be straightforward musical theatre all yeah. the time, or straightforward pop songs. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's nice to just have that creative challenge for me too, because yeah. it opens up my creative ideas, and my yep. creative expression yep. as well. Do you think that's an important thing to find a creative collaborator who does have that like point of difference, or? Well, it depends on what you're craving, yeah. I suppose. Because I know the stuff you do with Big Up Co-op, uh, not Big Up Co-op, the um, uh, Rag and Bone Press. You, you're all sort of similar. I mean, you're very different people, but you've kind of got similar backgrounds. We do. So yeah. I, I just wonder if maybe that creates, creates diff, like kind of, I'm sure that there are challenges and kind of benefits to both mm-hmm. arrangements. Mm-hmm. Well, I think with that, with um, Rag and Bone Man Press, I mean, we're working with incredibly unpolished manuscripts yeah. most of the time because they're just people's stories and most of them have never written in their yeah. life before and yeah. certainly not professionally. And there have been times where actually with those ones I've over-edited slightly and it's become much more a Dan Christie story than yeah. replicating that person's authentic <laughs> yeah. voice. Yeah. Um, but again, it creates that really interesting tension where you're forced to rethink your natural resources as a writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not for everyone. You think of people... I mean, I know like Stephen Sondheim, for example, has collaborated a lot in the past with lyricists, but... Part of what he does is because he understands his musical style so well and yeah. he has a good facility of languages that he can bring them together yeah. quite well. Yeah. And for me, I mean, part of the reason why I collaborate too is the part of the fact I enjoy working with people is that it's a matter of necessity because yeah. I can't read I can't read sheet music yeah. and I don't really master any instruments. Yeah. So really, I've played a bit of piano before, yeah. but not enough to have a really sophisticated understanding yeah. of it. So in some ways I need the brains, trust and skills yeah. of that collaborator yeah. to bring my work to light. Yeah. Whereas you might have a person such as yourself that actually works across both mediums yeah. and then there's the possibility yeah. to actually do that's, that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think you the, the issue of trust is a big one as well because mm. you kind of like, that's such a big thing in a collaborative relationship is that you have to really trust that the other person will n- maybe not take... Um, it will kind of be true to your creative vision of what what it was that you that you wanted when you when you were like creating the lyrics or the the text for the song. And I think like in your relationship, it's compromised. Yeah. Like a romantic relationship, yeah. it's yeah, about of those. And those I, th- I guess part of it is about letting go of some of those really any kind of really rigid expectations that you had, mm. and just trusting that the other person is good at what they do and can I guess like fill in that that part of your you know, of your practice that you don't have, you don't have the musical skills, so you're, you've handed it over to somebody else. Mm. And it is, it is tough, and even, I know, when I'm working on big up work, Dave sets the lyrics, and because it's because I don't read music, yeah. and because I often hear it in MIDI files, yeah. and they go, that's horrible, that's <laughs> not set right. Yeah. But he goes, actually, Dan, if you listen to the way that it's played with live instruments or yeah. sung, you'll realise yeah. it's not as rigid as that MIDI yeah. file. Yeah. You, know, you just need um, to relax MIDI a bit. MIDI is pretty unforgiving. <laughs> don't go away and rewrite it yeah. just because it sounds better yeah. on MIDI yeah. file. Yeah, it's true. Um, um, 
So maybe, can we just talk a bit about who you are, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. We sort of delved right into the heart of the conversation. conversation. (laughs) So we've known each other for such a long time, it's hard not to. Um, So effectively, I've just been thinking about a description yesterday, but I'm sort of a practitioner practitioner and facilitator of community creative projects. So a lot of the work that I do is always about bringing people together to be creative and to give them creative expression. So when I started, um, well, when we started um, the Rag and Bone Man Press, it came off the back of the Rag and Bone Man Salon because I simply wanted to get people together who I knew were good writers and loved writing just to write and express their work. And that developed um, with the press to us having a community focus about trying to bring marginalised voices to life. And so, again, we saw that our creative voice and our creative work through the filter of engaging with people and groups and communities and that was exactly the same philosophy with Big Up Co-op where we wanted to get a collective of creatives together who wanted to create new opera works but it was an idea that through collaborating we'd learn from each other and whether that was a designer or a singer or a composer um, we wanted to be inspired by this creative practice to sort of I suppose reach a goal we could fully realise something as a group Um, and then I Another thing I do is I've sort of done an updated version of the old Rag and Bone Man salons where now we are they're called the Rag and Scribble salons, which I run with a, a creative partner, Sarah Jansen, who runs an organisation called Scribble Creative. Yeah. And we do sort of public reading events. Yeah. Um, that we have an open mic section, but also set readers. Yeah. So we get them from across drama and theatre in Melbourne. So we've had people like Angela Meyer read poetry, um, Nate Gilks from the Present Tense Collective. Yeah. He talked was in conversation with my dad, actually, about yep. music theatre. Yep. So everything I do is always very, I suppose, as I said before, outward-focused, bring yeah. people together to help yeah. tell their story and yeah. help make sure they're being creative and yeah. practising creativity. Yeah. I find that interesting because you yourself are still quite a creative person and you do yeah. take on a, a, a fairly creative role. Like There's lots of people who work in these it's sort of more roles that kind of, I guess, facilitate creativity and they don't feel themselves as being creative people, but mm. I know you still have a really active role in actually, you know, producing a lot of the creative works. Absolutely. Um, and to be too perfectly honest, in all cases, it started off, although I enjoyed doing it, I, have yeah. to know, I do enjoy doing it, it was out of necessity as yeah. well because it was a bit of a gap filler in some yeah. cases. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the project like Big Up Co-op, because obviously you were involved yourself yeah. in some of the writing yeah. and some of the yeah. pieces. Because it was such a durational project, yeah. you know, it ran over five yeah. years, this production demise project, people move on with their lives, yeah, they simply exactly, drop out. Yeah, and so yeah. it was that born of necessity of wanting to create a fully realised piece that yeah. I actually stepped in a lot more and started yeah. developing the characters and developing the script and the lyrics. But it was actually really good because it forced me to actually be creative. Yeah, okay. I couldn't hide behind being an administrator yeah, okay, anymore. Sure. I was thrown into the maelstrom of actually yeah. having to slip in some ways face up to my creativity. Yeah, and yeah. It was something that obviously deep down I really craved to doing a lot more. Yeah. And it actually gave me a really good outlet for yeah. that to work on my skills as a yeah. lyricist, to see my work performed on stage, which is still one of the most exciting things I've ever yeah. seen in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember I was lucky that I was working with some like grads from Whopper and people like that that were sort of finding their way yeah. in the creative sector in Melbourne. And suddenly they were standing on stage singing my stuff. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was, it really helped me realise a part of myself that I think was seeking expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right, it is often either you get your creators or your arts administrators and they don't usually yeah. come in between. So I, was, I did sort of straddle both sides. Yeah, and because you, you're kind of more, I guess, I don't want to say professional work, but you know, you're, you're like 
full-time or part-time jobs have kind of been in arts administration. Yeah, yeah. up until recently. Um, but even so, the skills I'm using now, I work in the human services sector. They're pretty much straight transferable. Yeah. Arts admin is actually all a slog work. Like, it's yeah. not glamorous. It's yeah. making sure things, make sure the budget's being yeah. kept and people yeah. are being paid and all yeah. those types of things. Which I guess doesn't, I mean, if, you, if you're someone who is, like, more of that kind of purely creative mindset, but perhaps doesn't fit well, which comes down to something we were talking about earlier before I press record on my recorder, um, about the, um, when you are involved in these creative projects, managing the kind of, the marketing and administration required mm. and we're sort of both saying that that takes up far more time than the actual creative work oh absolutely it and, really does and i think it's it's a skill that that you have to have as a creative person is to either be able to delegate that to somebody else or to be okay with kind of straddling those two those two areas which i think i mean you're clearly like competent in both the creative side and the administration side so it's it's you know it works for you to to straddle both of those those areas mm. whereas I know for a lot of other people it, it can be quite difficult when you're you know like you have to write a bio for yourself or you you know well it's simply you know, not your skill set yeah, I mean exactly, that's yeah you basically when you're an artist or a musician you're basically like running your own business effectively yeah, yeah. you become a small business yes, person of course and suddenly you're having to throw in all these skills yeah. from bookkeeping to marketing yeah. to everything yeah. and that's not what you're there for you're no, there to yeah. create art yeah but which is why I think, I mean, I think the collaborative stuff is really interesting because mm. it does provide, it, it does, you know, kind of provide you with the opportunity to fill those holes in your skill set with somebody else. And it in does. turn... Shares perhaps, the burden. Yeah, it shares the burden and it gives you someone to bounce ideas off as you found in your, all of your creative collaborations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, even with all the best help in the world, you could always use more. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Yeah. And I think, again, it all depends... It's always that sort of balance, especially if you are working in the more independent arts scene or yeah. in a smaller concern. Yeah. There's always going to be a DIY yeah, of course. having if, to yeah. just lump in and get work yeah. done. Even if it's three of you or four of yeah. you, there's always that yeah. sort of everyone having to sort of just muck in and yeah. do it. And I think it's, it's, it's actually quite nice in that collaborative environment because there is that sense of community and you're all in it together. So it's not just one person having to do everything and, and maybe getting a bit burnt out. You're kind of, like you say, sharing the burden and you're... You know, you can all do the hard work when it's required and then, you know, mm. have a party once you, exactly. once you launch whatever it is you've been working on. It is interesting because there's, there's always like those peaks and chops. There's also very intense times of activity too. Yeah. So there's times where yeah. you're called on to both be very intensely producing creative work yeah. and being in that creative space and also very intensely marketing yeah. and producing. Yeah. So it, it is one of the strains sometimes is that actually you're being pulled in all directions yeah. at once. Yeah. That's always something you have to keep negotiating with yeah. yourself. Yeah. Especially because if your ultimate product is your creative work, you have to make sure you're not, that's not slipping so far down the yeah. priority level that yeah, suddenly it's true. you it's, stop creating. Yeah, I find that happens with, with me, especially in the lead up to something. You just buried in, in all of the admin and marketing that you have to do for it so I don't know for me this kind of daily song project is giving me that reason to create something every single day even if it's just something small you're kind of keeping the because I find that the longer you go without creating something that's when all of these sort of negative feelings can start to manifest and you like start to feel you just start to feel kind of crap about yourself because you're not making work and you're not being exactly. artistic and creative so the, you know, keeping that like 
I guess just like exercising your creative muscle is... It is. And like if, you, if you're a creative person, you need to create. And I think that's what I came to understand about myself is that no matter what I do with my life, whenever yeah. I get my main source of income, yeah. it's a fundamental part of my being and self-expression yeah. that I actually am flexing that creative muscle yeah. in one form or another. Yeah. Yeah. It, is, it is literally like a part of yourself. Yeah. So if you're not finding a, a proper outlet yeah. for that, it's yeah. like elements just sitting there, yeah. not being exercised exactly. properly. And you know, it doesn't have to be your full-time thing as you say you can be doing other things as your like full-time job and then Mm. have it as a as something that you do on the side or just Mm. and I have a very passionate self-commitment to always producing like that's why I keep that I really value the partnership with Dave and Bagel Cop in particular is that it forces me to keep working as a lyricist and explore new creative ideas as a lyricist Yeah. yeah Um, I mean, some of us, we have a certain style, Dave and I, but there's things we're doing with this new piece that we certainly didn't do with Seduction yeah, and Demise. Yeah. It's much more impressionistic. It's much more sort of fragmented yeah. as a whole concept yeah. and as a piece. And, yeah. like, I, and I find that really exciting because there's this part of me that's still exploring that and pushing yeah. that boundary. Yeah. Yeah. And there's already, I'm thinking, you know, there's other things I could do again and different styles of things yeah. I'd like to try. Yeah. Um, and just keeping that part of your mind ticking over, yeah. I think, is crucial. Yeah. Absolutely crucial. Can we talk a little bit about the maybe just that kind of process of developing like conceptual works and stuff because I mm. the one thing that I really remember from the big up co-op was that you were really good at setting setting people tasks to mm. actually get them on track and I don't know I learned a lot of my creative tricks from that time I guess like things like you know just I guess doing image searches for 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 images that kind of would would inspire you like we had the characters that we were writing for and we mm. you know found images of what we our representation of that character was in our own mind which then gives you something to work from. And then I always remember your prompt that you gave me, which was incinerating a French stocking, which is you told me to write something to that prompt. <laughs> and it's, it's one of the, the, my favourite things that I've ever, I've ever come up with, just because it was such a bizarre thing. And, and I've, I've now taken a lot of those little, like, kind of tricks that you taught me. So maybe talk, maybe talk about your tricks and... Well, I suppose the one good thing about the tricks is that the reason why I could do that is because... And this, I understood creativity and creative writing to begin with. Yeah. And that, again, that comes back to the fortunate thing of having, I suppose, the administrative discipline of yeah. running a project, but yeah. also the creative imagination to yeah. take some far-out ideas yeah. and just play with it. Because yeah. um, I knew working in a collective like that, people needed inspiration. Yeah. Um, and I, even now when Dave and I are working with this piece, we're saying, okay, what, are, what is our hero image of this piece? What is yeah. it that we're writing towards yeah. in terms of an image? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's images are crucial because even if you're not necessarily doing a theatrical production, you're still envisioning yeah. uh, a sense or a feel yeah. or an idea. And that's idea. kind of a big part about my writing is this like sense-based writing. So imagining, imagining, I kind of see like a little movie scene in my mind and then you imagine all of the, the sensory information that goes along with that. Mm. And that's a big part of my process. But I, and I definitely need to do more Google image searching. I think that would... Help. Images images help a lot yeah. because they focus what you what story you want to tell. But I'm also apart from that, when you talk about the incinerating of French stock, yeah. it's about having a really vivid short image. Yes, so yeah, that's exactly. grab it in a sentence. Yeah. Um, I remember Kira's on that was like an egotistical canoe stuck in the side of the Swiss Alps. Yeah, yeah. And immediately that like it's, yeah. it's bizarre. Like, what do you write yeah. for that? But yeah. it brings together a very specific and creatively interesting image yeah. to life. Yeah. Um, because obviously for this song we were talking about what is effectively like a schizophrenic woman. You yeah. know, she's going between different identities yep. and different yeah. ideas. You, if you're going to write mad, you need something to flavour yeah. it with. Yeah. But also because you can be a freewheeling with your prose, but you still need that hook, that yeah. thing to focus yes. your imagery yeah, and ideas sure. on. 
And that's why I knew particularly when we were working with a group and because we were trying to work towards the same ends, you need yeah. to feed that fire. Yeah. Yeah. So I think short, sharp sentences that just encapsulate what you're trying to do. Yeah. I was playing, even playing around the other day idea with, um, like, I was looking in the lounge room and we have three Mimis, um, Aboriginal yeah. um, totems from Central Australia. And I just had the idea of them as... Um, three sisters stuck in a sort of southern gothic decrepit yeah. farmhouse and I used that as my point of yeah, departure okay. just to nice. play with a thought idea <laughs> so it was like even just the furniture yeah. in the room I just go yeah. I'm focusing on that yeah. I'm going to extrapolate from that and yeah. the final piece will probably end up being something completely unrelated to yeah. that but it's having that source yep. concept yeah for sure yeah um and actually I'm really glad that you found that useful because you know obviously that was the whole purpose behind the yeah. Rock Co-op project yeah. was to sort of inspire tricks and yeah. learn from the process. Yeah, know. of course. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I still use heaps of that stuff that we that we kind of worked on. And then, you know, just lots of things we did. I know we did lots of brainstorming. Mm. Probably too much wine involved in the, in the <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> side. But like, you know, like big kind of plot brainstorms. And I just re- I, I just remember feeling that was like, because like I said before, I've always struggled with plot, but some suddenly when you've been you've got someone who is kind of I guess giving you these sort of signposts or or like prompts, then the process becomes so much easier. Mm. And, and it's think, a conversation as well. So what yeah. you're doing is you're having a conversation with someone. Yeah. And you, when you have someone to talk to or yeah. talk from, it's so much easier yeah. than sitting and talking to yourself. Yeah, of course. But. So I guess I mean for people who are working by themselves, you've kind of got to find ways of of emulating that mm. that conversation and these sorts of little tricks like having that that really vivid image or it's kind of like you're, kind of like you, you know, you've got somebody else there that you're, that you're like pulling your ideas from. Exactly, and I keep an ear out. Like I'll often like see a, a play, or I'll see, or I'll read a book, and there'll be this one sentence or something, and I'm going, "That's a fantastic sentence," yeah. and I try and file it away because yeah. I know if I need to write something later, I can yeah. pull that out. Yeah. So I think that sometimes it's important to be sensitive to your environment as like yeah. as an image that just strikes you and you go, yeah, sure. I've got to follow by the way yeah. for something else because it, it'll, it will strike you all of a yeah. sudden and you go, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and that means also that especially if you are a person that's writing by yourself, you have some of your, as you said before, something to work from. Yeah. So you're not sort of working in a, yeah. in a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is kind of maybe a good place to, to end on because the the big thing that I'm interested in in this podcast is the work that goes into the creation because mm-hmm. that's the thing that that's the thing that's interesting to me because I, I kind of like learning about the process. But I think it's also the thing that's interesting to other people because you don't ever see that. You only ever no. see the, the finished product. Exactly, and exactly. And everybody works at it. Doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what you're creating and when. Yeah, exactly. So maybe have you got anything next? What's next for... Well, it's just, it's basically getting the new Sea Shanty song cycle up. So we've yeah. actually, looks like we're going to be working with um, uh, operatic soprano we know called Jess, Jess, who was in a 2014 production. Yeah. We did of Seduction and Demise, um, some samples from that. She's fantastic. She works with Lyric Opera. Yeah. And she was really happy to collaborate with us again. Yeah, so it's, there is so, it's a six song cycle of six songs, three sung by essentially male characters and yeah. three by female yeah. characters. Yeah. And they're basically songs from the sea. And Dave and I were seeing us the challenge. After having done like a full narrative piece of just taking it back yeah. to its essential ideas and playing with sound and texture yeah. and imagery yeah. and just small character yeah. pieces. Yeah. Um, so it's really exciting, Dave. It's our first proper collaboration in a couple of years. We've taken a bit of time off after yeah. the intensity of the Seduction and Demise project. Yeah. So 
that's our main focus. And then I'll be working with Sarah Jansen as well on trying to do um, more Scribble Salon events. Um, the last one we held for the Small Press Network conference was really great, and I was really excited that we had a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse young writers in there, yeah, so okay. it wasn't a room of whiteies just sitting yeah. there yeah. <laughs> yeah. talking to each sure. other. And so I'd love to sort of help facilitate more projects like yeah. that again too throughout the year. So we're talking about that. Um, we've started a Facebook group as well where people are posting their upcoming creative and writing events yeah, too. Okay. So trying to foster that community ongoing throughout yeah. the year. Yeah. Excellent. And if people want to get in touch with you, what do you... Uh, actually, well, I suppose at the moment you can always look at um, www dot rag and bone man dot org for the yeah, okay. website. I'll put, I'll put a link on exactly um they got co-op websites only being developed at the moment but we'll get yeah, that back that's on all, all good yeah um but as again we have facebook pages for all yeah, of them so rag and bone big up co-op and this um rag and scribble salon as well yeah. they're the best points of access excellent cool well thanks for chatting Dan. no problem Zero. it's been good to be here so there you have my chat with dan christie um, please do look up Dan and his projects because they're really fantastic. And not only do they give you an opportunity to, I guess, experience the projects as a consumer, um, there's also the opportunity to get involved as a creator, uh, particularly the Scribble Salons. And I know that Dan's planning on running a few uh, Scribble Salons throughout this year. So um, if you would like details, I'll put the links up on my website. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, you can do so via iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have any thoughts on today's episode or any thoughts on something you would like me to chat to some of my guests about, please get in touch via email or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter because I would love to hear from you. You have been listening to Mind Over Myth, hosted and produced by Erica Bramham. Our theme music is Two Acorns from the album Twelve Moons. It was composed and performed by Erica Bramham and features Nathan Liao on piano, Adam Spiegel on bass and Justin Olsen on drums.